Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. The cause of tuberculosis is the germ Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Meanwhile, the causes of heart disease are variable. Smoking, sedentary lifestyle, bad genes, and so on. Is this just a fact? Did the German microbiologist Robert Koch really discover that Mycobacterium tuberculosis is the cause of tuberculosis? According to some historians and philosophers, it's more than just a matter of fact. It's partly a conceptual choice of how we classify diseases, one with important implications for how epidemiology and medicine are practiced today. Thankfully, conceptual understanding and analysis is part of the scope of practice of a philosopher. Today's consultation is with philosopher Alex Broadbent, professor of philosophy at the University of Johannesburg. Alex Broadbent, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I think it's obvious that investigating the causes of disease in epidemiology and medical science is important for prevention in medicine, but why could a philosophical analysis of disease also be potentially useful for medicine and epidemiology? I think the reason, one of the primary reasons, is that the understanding of what a disease is affects how medicine is done and how epidemiology is done. In particular, so I think there are two things. One is understanding what accounts as disease or health in the first place. But then secondly, and this is where my particular interests are, the decision about how to classify diseases is one that isn't entirely empirically determined, so ultimately can't be answered just by doing science. You have to also do some conceptual work, and philosophers can help medical scientists with that conceptual work. And why are philosophers in particular good at looking at these kinds of conceptual questions? Well, it's our business, it's our training. And what often happens when you come across a problem in a very practical discipline like medicine, also like law, is that you know there are strong practical pressures and so one tries to avoid the problem. Philosophers, on the other hand, like problems because that's where they get their, their work from. And they're, as a consequence, they're more likely to face these things directly and you know, they relish it, they enjoy it, they have practice doing it. So, so the marriage of those two skills, the, the sort of practical knowledge of a certain domain, along with a conceptual skill set the philosopher can offer, uh, can be very powerful. Okay, so now getting to the question about the causes of disease. Robert Koch, German microbiologist, uh, we credit him with discovering that the cause of tuberculosis is uh, what he would say, the tuberculobacillus. Nowadays, we would say mycobacterium tuberculosis. Modern epidemiology, though, might say something like for heart attacks or stroke, a cause of heart attack is smoking. Another cause is hypertension. So why do we talk about the cause of an infectious disease often while we talk about the causes of non-communicable diseases? Is this just a factual difference between how infectious diseases are caused on the one hand and how non-communicable ones are caused on the other hand? It is in part to do with the fact that they're different. They're just different diseases. But it's important to see that there was a conceptual element in deciding that we were going to classify certain diseases by a single cause. Nothing forces you to classify certain cases of diarrhea as cholera and leave out the others that aren't caused by Vibrio cholera infection. And there's no experiment you can do that will prove that's the right thing to do. It's a classificatory decision, and for that reason, it's a conceptual one. It's a conceptual decision that has very powerful therapeutic, medical, empirical consequences. But there's no corresponding fact in the world that we can empirically access anyway that tells us that cholera is, never occurs without Vibrio cholera. That was a conceptual decision. 
with something like heart disease, we just don't see anything that could usefully be used in that way. It would, in theory, be possible, say, with smoking and lung cancer. In theory, one could say, oh, we have smoking disease and we're going to separate smoking disease from other cases of lung cancer. In theory, one could do that. But it's not clear why one would do that. It just doesn't seem to work. And understanding what, what makes the certain classificatory decisions more powerful than others is a deep and old philosophical question. But one thing is for sure, you can't simply consult uh, the world, as it were, empirically and expect to have an answer about how to make those sorts of classificatory decisions. Instead, oftentimes what we do is we say that the causes of these diseases, like lung cancer, is multifactorial, um, caused by a combination of factors. We often divide these into genetic or innate and environmental causes. But what exactly do we mean when we say that a certain disease is determined in a multifactorial way? What is typically meant is that there is a kind of a constellation of causes which in each case come, results in the effect but there's nothing particularly in common between all of the constellations of causes for all of the different cases. So one person's heart disease might be caused by diet. Another one, it might smoking might be among the causes. Third person might be diet and smoking. A fourth person, it may be primarily to do with family history and genetics. And there's usually some combination of these things. But it's a, you know, we, we can say that a certain proportion of cases of heart disease seem to exhibit a genetic component. A certain portion seem to exhibit some other component, but they're not exclusive, they operate together, and none of them is particularly used to, to, to classify the disease. So we don't end up saying, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is bad eating disease or something like that. It just doesn't seem useful to do that because none of them rises to prominence. Whereas, you know, with something like rabies, you know, there are other causes of difficulty to sort of swallow it. I mean, a blow to the stomach or something will cause it to have difficulty swallowing, but it, it does seem very useful to separate out difficulty swallowing caused by a blow to the stomach from difficulty swallowing caused by the presence of, uh, you know, rabies. That's the fundamental difference. The idea that different cases of the same disease could be caused by different constellations of factors um, and that there's no one cause that these various cases might have in common. That idea seems very powerful for investigating diseases in epidemiology and medicine. But I take it that, you know, if we go back 150 years in the era of the germ theory of disease, we didn't think that way. Yeah. So when did this idea of investigating the multiple causes of diseases gain popularity in the 20th century and why? Well, so far as I can see, it, it rose in popularity with the discipline of epidemiology. Epidemiology really centered itself in the first instance around smoking and lung cancer and establishing causal connection between the two. And also somewhat slightly later, uh, there's a famous study on heart disease, the Framingham Heart, uh, heart Study. So those two cases, but particularly the smoking and lung cancer example. But in both of those cases, it was clear that there was not going to be the kind of one-one correlation that you get between the exposure and the disease in infectious diseases. So the only way epidemiology would be able to get off the ground would be by saying, look, this is not uh, how all diseases work. And then epidemiology grew as a science. And so too did our success at dealing with infectious diseases. These all happened around the same time after the Second World War. We had antibiotics after the Second World War suddenly coming into play, uh, greatly helping deal with infectious diseases. At the same time, we had studies on smoking and lung cancer and heart disease and a further appreciation of the fact that there are things killing us that are not infections. And of course, because people weren't dying of infections, there were more and more of them, at least in the developed world or as, as the developed world developed.
dying of uh, these diseases. And so they, they rose in importance in the countries that were and are rich enough to support investigation into the causes of disease in the first place. Of course, infectious diseases still claim many lives in other places. So that led to this change in how we think about what a disease is, because suddenly the diseases that were claiming the most lives didn't fit the model that fitted infectious disease so well. And it also led to the start of risk factor epidemiology and thinking about risk factors in medicine. But what is a risk factor? A risk factor is simply something that increases the risk of a disease, which has a specific technical meaning in epidemiology, but it translates very naturally to just saying that it increases the probability that the disease is going to happen to you. When a risk factor is applied to a population, it means that it increases the level of that disease in the population. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a causal connection. It could be a predictive risk factor. And one of the main things that epidemiologists then try and do is they try and work out whether these things that seem to predict a higher level of disease in a population are in fact responsible for it or whether there's something else that's causing both the observed risk factor and the disease. Once we've associated a disease with a number of risk factors and determined a subset of those risk factors that are causes of the disease, it seems like we're left to say no more than the disease once again is multifactorial. So what might be the problems in your view with this, this particular pursuit of causal knowledge in epidemiology? Well, the danger is that one throws the baby out with the bathwater because one loses the advantages of the, that the monocausal model had. And those advantages were that they encouraged people to explain cases of the disease which didn't seem to, to fit with their hypothesis as to what was the cause. So suppose somebody comes along and they say, look, okay, this bacteria is causing this disease. And somebody else says, no, that's not right, because look at these cases. Then there's going to be some debate and discussion and decision is made about what's going on. If one adopts the multifactorial model, one just doesn't have that debate. And all one does is say, well, there's this risk factor responsible for this amount and this risk factor responsible for that amount. And it might actually be that there are, there's something useful to discover, which one is simply not pushed to discover because one can just say, well, there's lots of different risk factors. I mean, to sort of extend it, one could, in principle, on the multifactorial model, one could almost end up saying there was just one disease and it had a load of different risk factors and a load of different manifestations. And obviously that wouldn't be very helpful. So to take it to a ridiculous extreme, in theory, that could be permitted by a, a very liberal kind of multifactorial way of understanding a disease. You mentioned a monocausal model. What is the monocausal model? Uh, the monocausal model is the idea that a disease is caused by, very crudely, is caused by just one thing. But, I mean, everything has many causes, obviously, but that cause has a special characteristic, which is that it's present in all the cases where the disease is present and absent in all cases where the disease is absent, meaning that it's both necessary for the disease to happen and, in certain circumstances, sufficient for the disease. You know, there are lots of causes of cases of disease. I mean, oxygen is a cause of every case of disease, but it fails to count as a cause of this kind. Because if you have a situation where everything else is such that were you to add oxygen, you'd have the disease. Okay, that's fine. Oxygen is sufficient. But if you take the oxygen away, you don't have a case of good health. You have a case of death. So it doesn't make a difference between cases of good health and illness. One of the conditions of the monocausal model is that the cause we're identifying has to be necessary, universal. And we get that way through stipulating as much? We do typically do some stipulating because typically symptoms by which we will identify diseases are going to some extent to be shared between different diseases. And so at some point we're going to have to say, okay, no, we're going to exclude certain cases of diarrhea from cholera and just say, no, that might be very symptomatically similar to cholera, 
but we're going to just say it's something different. So there is a, an element of stipulation in there. The idea is that that stipulation, if one does it well, somehow maps what's really out there in a way that's useful. So that's where the conceptual question comes in. Which, which cause are we going to use to define a particular disease? But it seems there's still also the empirical question. We can't just define disease in terms of just any causal factor. There has to be some fact of the matter about whether or not the factor we choose is a cause of the disease. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It has to actually be a cause of the disease. So this question is not purely a conceptual one. It's a mix. It has a conceptual aspect. Yeah. So whether or not something counts as a cause is just a matter of fact. Whether it is a cause that satisfies this model is also going to be a matter of fact. But the point is that when you pick different causes, you're going to end up selecting different sets of cases of illness. And some of those are going to be particularly useful and some of them are going to be completely pointless. And to give you an illustration of the, of the interplay between these things, you can think of phenylketonuria, which is caused by an intolerance to phenylalanine. I mean, there's, well, there's two ways to think about it. One way to think about it is as a genetic disorder, which means that you are intolerant to this thing. Another way to think about it is as a, an environmentally caused thing. It's a poisoning, effectively, by this poisonous chemical, but a very large number of people are immune. They, they have genetic variants that makes them immune. You can think of it either way. And in that case, it doesn't much matter. Even tuberculosis, given that you can inherit some degree of immunity to tuberculosis, you can, if you wish, you could explore trying to classify tuberculosis not as disease caused by uh, tuberculosis, but rather a vulnerability to a rather common environmental agent, which is caused by a genetic defect where you don't inherit certain immunity. I mean, it, so even in those cases, you could pick different classificatory causes, which would still satisfy the monocausal model. And the question of which one of those ones you pick isn't, you know, it, it's, it answers to the world. It's empirically important, but, you know, you can't do an experiment that tells you which one you should get in any, you know, that the world doesn't tell you. It's rather that some of these decisions, you know, just, just lead to a more successful medical science than others do. We might worry because the question of what a cause is, is also a, a thorny one in philosophy, and it's partly a conceptual question, or at least it's asked that way in some cases. Do we need to settle the answer to that question before we can wrap our head around the monocausal model? I don't think we do, because the understanding of causation in philosophy, you know, we, we don't, we just don't, we, you know, if we had to understand causation in philosophy before we could use the concept, then there are many, many fields where we wouldn't get anywhere, you know, in legal contexts and more normally normal moral descriptions, making predictions and explanations and and then in medicine as well. So I think we have a decent understanding of it intuitively. We, we know what we mean when we talk about causation. And there's no particular special features of causes that are being appealed to in the monocausal model. The main feature that's being appealed to is that there is some kind of counterfactual dependence between cause and effect. And that is the feature that is most commonly appealed to in non-philosophical contexts when causation is used. It's the feature that's typically appealed to in the legal contexts and also in medical reasoning. So it's not actually that important to investigate the nature of causation before one looks at disease. And this monocausal way of thinking is not just something that's going on in your head as a philosopher, but many people have thought that also this is the way that medical scientists and physicians thought some time ago. So when did this monocausal way of thinking originate in medicine? Well, so far as I can see, it originated in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, with people like Jacob Henley and Robert Koch 
who complained bitterly about the fact that in medical books you'd see whole lists of causes leading to whole lists of different diseases and there was just you know for every cause you'd find a load of different possible diseases and for every disease you'd find a load of different possible causes there was a lot of overlap you know bad housing bad diet too much sex too much drinking all of these things would be listed as causes of diseases and this was just thought to be very very unscientific Jacob Henley has this wonderful passage where he says, look, this is about as scientific as if uh, physicists were to teach that objects fall because ropes are cut, boards break, there are openings and gaps and so forth. And what Jacob Henley is saying there is, look, you know, we're not being scientific unless we come up with general explanations for these phenomena. And as long as we're just cataloging the causes of disease, we're not coming up with general explanations. We're just offering catalogues of causes, which is just like offering a list of reasons that objects might fall instead of offering a theory of gravity. So how did this monocausal alternative way of thinking rise then in that period? It rose with the discovery of bacteria and our ability to see these things, germs. And that was, the, I think, the major driver. And this gave rise to this to the germ theory of disease, which was the view that all diseases are in fact caused by you know, the invasion of the body with tiny little animals, which we could suddenly see. This theory of disease is not strictly true. It does apply to some diseases, but not to others. But certainly people like Robert Cox seem to be very, very hopeful of this, that now we'd understand disease. And of course, if that's how disease works, then there's a very obvious classification system that suggests itself for disease. You just classify it by the kind of tiny animal that's infecting you. You know, anthrax is caused by the, the little animal that causes anthrax. And, you know, tuberculosis is caused by the little animal or the little organism that causes tuberculosis and so forth. And these things will then respond, one imagines, to you know, different and specific treatments, potentially. Antibiotics were not thought of then, but vaccination was, you know, I mean, uh, was being thought of. And Robert Koch was very active in vaccination, produced the first vaccinations. And this, you know, these seem to be specific tools that would target specific diseases. Likewise, you know, certain kinds of very general measures seemed to be effective. You know, if you disinfected, washed hands and so forth, this would prevent any organisms from crossing a certain barrier, and that would be a way of keeping disease out. And it was thought that this was just a much more effective and useful and practical way of dealing with diseases than, than what had been around before, which was to just to try and improve people's living conditions, basically. So there was a strong political element to this as well, and it remains the case. There is, a, you know, epidemiology tends to be more concerned with people's living conditions and the sort of more scientific ends of medicine tend to be more concerned with sort of the biological end of things. And there's a political tension between these two ways of looking at how you're supposed to deal with people's ill health. Or, you know, do you treat the immediate cause and thereby enable them to live in squalid conditions without perishing? Or do you improve the conditions so they're less squalid? So there's a complex scientific and, and political intermesh that gave rise to this idea that single causes could be identified that would be responsible for a certain disease. And then we just have to act on those. And then people can go back to their slums and they won't be ill. Might that be one of the reasons that we don't currently define many non-communicable diseases monocausally? As you mentioned earlier, we could, of course, stipulate that certain subset of causes of lung cancer are smoking disease, just by definition. But we typically don't do this for non-communicable diseases. Might one of the reasons be that some of the causes, the causal risk factors we've identified, are social causes, behavioral causes? I think that's right. I think that is partly why. And it's very hard to see social causes fitting a monocausal model or offering a kind of classificatory scheme because it's not easy to see social causes as coming in a kind of ready classified form in the way that biological organisms do. 
It's also the case that most social causes are associated with a range of different poor health outcomes, depending on you know where one is in the world and other factors, uh, cultural, climatic factors, and so forth. In your view, should we adapt the monocausal model and use it to classify non-communicable diseases? I don't think we should use the monocausal model. I don't think there is any good reason, ultimately, to think that diseases must just have one cause. The reason that Robert Koch in particular thought that was that he was interested in germ theory of disease and he was interested in producing vaccinations. And actually, there's no particular reason to think, one, why not two or three or five causes, which when they're all present, you get the disease. On the other hand, I do think that there needs to be more pressure than there currently is to identify constellations of one or two or three or five or ten or however many causes and say, we are going to say this is a certain disease. So I, I would drop the monocausal bit, but I would say you do need some pressure to classify diseases more than is currently done. I think at the moment there probably are diseases that we lump together, which in the future we will see as different. I, I mean, diabetes is an obvious example of this where they are now saying it's type one and type two, and maybe there's another type as well and so forth. And ultimately we probably, when we understand these things better, we're probably gonna say these are not in fact the same disease at all. You suggest a contrastive disease model that's potentially useful for modern epidemiology and medicine? Yes, so the contrastive disease model is similar to the monocausal model, except allows more causes. And the core idea is that, so you have a set of symptoms and then a set of causes, and the causes are differences between cases where you've got the symptoms and cases where you don't have the symptoms. And the point is that you're trying to explain these differences. You're trying to explain these contrasts between good health and lack of health. And the way you do that is by citing causes. And it could be several that you need. And the, the point of this model is that that contrastive way of thinking iterates. You then look at cases that don't fit where you seem to have you know, immunity or asymptomatic infection or something like that. And then you look for the difference between those cases and the people who do have the disease. And that contrastive inquiry structure is very fundamental to scientific inquiry and the point is that you are looking you are like the monocausal model urges looking for general explanations of disease whereas my concern about the multifactorial model is that there's no pressure to produce explanations all you end up doing is producing catalogues of risk factors and it's actually not very helpful for understanding when you think about what understanding is to have a catalogue of risk factors i mean we know that events have causes and having a catalogue of the causes is of limited use. What we want is to know which of these causes are differences between the case of the disease and the case of the absence of disease. Plausibly, there might be many different ways to base our classification systems of diseases on explanations for those diseases. Why do you think a contrastive causal model is best suited to epidemiology and medicine? I think it's because of this pressure to offer general explanations. I do think there is value in attaining general explanations of phenomena because, you know, I mean, that's the fundamental point of inquiry. If everything could only be understood on its own terms, one would not have inquiry. One would just have to inquire into every single case and you wouldn't have any useful knowledge beforehand. So it's that pressure to seek general explanations that I think is what makes it particularly useful. The more general the explanation, the more people it applies to and the more powerful and useful it is. Well, for multifactorial reasons, I really enjoyed that. So thanks. Thank you very much. I did too. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.